from McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that is only skin deep. I'm Michael Crosser, of course you know Chad Tilburg, and today's title is Repeating Cellular Sunscreen. Hey everybody, so it is spring break here in the Pacific Northwest, when a lot of people, not named Mike, will go down somewhere warm and sunny and come back with a nice tan. So this is a perfect opportunity to replay an episode from last year in which we talked about how our cells actually tan to protect them from future sun exposure. Enjoy. Hey, Chad. Uh, good morning, Michael. So today we're talking about skin color. How are we going about that? So today we have a special guest, one of my colleagues from the biology department here at Linfield University. This is Dr. Shana Bowman. And Shana studies skin pigmentation and the molecular biology and cell biology behind how it is that skin pigment varies among different humans and how it's produced and as in manufactured inside the cell and what it does and the genes involved. So all kinds of things related to skin pigmentation. So welcome. Thank you both for having me. Yeah. So where would be a good place to start? Maybe talking a little bit about the origin and distribution of skin pigmentation? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. So I always like to point out that human skin color varies across Earth. We can look at different populations and see a wide range of skin, hair, and eye color in different regions. And I always like to point out, too, that many human traits like skin color have evolved in response to different environmental conditions. This one just happens to be very, very visible. So it's also unique to some of our closest relatives. So chimpanzees have light skin under dark fur, and our ancestors probably did, too. That was millions of years ago before we lost our hair. Then eventually we lost our hair and our skin color got darker. And the main reason for why that is, is that melanin, at least some types of melanin, protect us from ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And to talk about how we think skin color evolved in response to UV, I think it's helpful to give some detail about the types of melanin pigments that people have and how that gives us different types of skin color. Okay. All right. So what are the types of melanin then? Can I throw us off right off the bat? So is hair color also from melanin or is that a different pigment? Yeah. So in humans, all color comes from two types of melanin. There are brown and black eumelanins and red and yellow pheomelanins. And so Um, when we get into other animals, we see melanins a lot, but also some additional pigments that can give orange, yellow, and red colors in birds, for example. I think, Chad, you had a question there. So when you say eumelanins and pheomelanins, is this like a broad category? And there are several different types of eumelanin. Is that what you're implying? There are actually a few ty- different types of eumelanin. And one type is more common in African populations, another type in Asian populations, and another in European populations. The oh. darkest being in African populations, the lightest being in the Europeans, the Asian one is somewhere in the middle. So they are they are slightly chemically different. The molecule itself is very similar overall. And the way that eumelanin and pheomelanin are synthesized starts out the same way. So all melanins originate from the amino acid tyrosine. Hmm. And there are a series of chemical modifications that happen to make either eumelanin or pheomelanin Something that's kind of interesting is that um, we kind of think pheomelanin is the default melanin that's produced. So we can come back to why and how people make eumelanins in a bit. But if individuals have a certain gene that allows them to produce eumelanin, they will. If they have a different version of that gene, they'll produce predominantly pheomelanin instead. 
And pheomelanin production also requires the amino acid cysteine and the availability of that in the body might also influence how much eumelanin or pheomelanin is made, especially in individuals that make a lot of both. And so eumelanin and pheomelanin, are they chemically different in a way that matters as it pertains to their function? Yeah. So eumelanin is able to absorb ultraviolet light and that actually protects skin cell DNA from UV induced mutations, which can cause skin cancer. So I'll have to back up a little bit and and talk a bit about where the melanins are made. So melanins are made in pigment cells called melanocytes. And if you have moles on your skin, anywhere you see a mole, that's a cluster of pigment cells in your skin. And then those cells are sort of long and send out projections kind of, they kind of look like a neuron and they reach out through all of the layers of the skin and transfer melanin to skin cells called keratinocytes. And those keratinocytes actually keep the melanin in this kind of hood-like structure. You can think of it like an umbrella or like a hood, like on a raincoat. And it basically shields the DNA and the nucleus of the skin cell from ultraviolet radiation from the sun. So they're positioned kind of on the outward facing side of the nucleus. Yeah, it's really cool to look at the electron micrographs of the skin cells. You can see a really clear sort of a U-shaped pattern around that part of the nucleus. Huh. Let me make sure I understand correctly. So where the melon is manufactured is different from the site at which it has its activity. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. It's a completely different cell type. So what happens is when you're exposed to UV, when you're out in the sun for a day, that releases a hormone called the melanocyte stimulating hormone. And that's released from skin cell keratinocytes, also from the pituitary gland. And that activates a receptor on the pigment cells. And that increases melanin production in that cell type. But it also increases secretion of the melanin from the melanocyte, which is then taken up by the skin cell keratinocytes. Okay, so how many of these cells that make the melanin, how many cells does that one cell service, basically? Oh, several. So the melanocytes are way bigger than the keratinocytes. And since they send out these very long projections that go through all layers of the skin, they're servicing possibly hundreds of skin cells, one melanocyte. Okay, and so they basically make it and then they ship it out to all the cells. And then over time, I assume it must just degrade or something like that because I lose my tan over time. That's a great question. And we are are still learning a lot about how melanin is degraded in the keratinocyte. So yes, they are degraded over time. There's some evidence that suggests actually that the melanin in people with lighter skin is degraded faster in the keratinocytes than it is in folks with darker skin too. How does that transfer happen? I mean, is it, it's, so it's manufactured inside one cell and then to, it has to cross a membrane or something to get into the other cell? Is How is that mediated? Good question. So the melanin is made in a specific part of the melanocyte It's a specialized organelle that you only find in pigment cells. And that's where all of the chemistry to make either eumelanin, maybe pheomelanin happens. Pheomelanin might be made in the same place or somewhere different, we're not sure. But certainly some membrane-bound organelle within the melanocyte. And what happens is that entire membrane-bound organelle is secreted by the melanocyte. Oh, okay. So are all the cells, you said it's going through all the layers of the skin cells. Remind me, hopefully I'm correct when I say this, that is it true that we grow a lot of skin cells and then they just kind of break off at the end, but the lower cells are newer and then they just kind of work their way up, sort of like a conveyor belt or something like that, or? Yeah, and you'll find more pigment in the more external layers than those deeper layers. So more will be deposited over time in the, the lifespan of those skin cells. Okay. So it's impossible to get like, if you had a focused ray of sunlight, if I shine light on just a single cell, that cell is not going to get a tan. 
it may trigger this big spot. Yeah. And I think what would happen is that since that cell will release hormone into the surrounding area outside of it, that stimulates melanocytes to make more melanin. Those melanocytes would then release more melanin and that will be taken up by many skin cells in the area. That's cool. Okay. Do we know anything about what it is about eumelanin and the pheomelanin that causes them to be photoprotective or not? Based on its chemical structure, the eumelanin absorbs UV while pheomelanin doesn't. Okay. And eumelanin is also able to quench reactive oxygen species, which can be produced when UV interacts with certain molecules in the cell. And those reactive oxygens can damage things like DNA, which could also lead to skin cancer mutations. Pheomelanin is not able to do that, at least not as well as eumelanin. So those, there are kind of two reasons why eumelanin is better able to protect skin cell DNA from damage. So eumelanin, and we should probably point out this is E-U-M-E-L-A-N-I-N. This is not like the letter U short for like UV absorbing or anything like that. This is whatever the E-U stands for. True. True? Mm-hmm. So like eusocial, is that the same root? Yes. Wow. Look at what I stumbled into. <laughs> so these cells have a queen cell. No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So this is eumelanin. So it absorbs UV, but it also absorbs a lot of other colors, right? I mean, this is the dark skin color. Mm-hmm. And whereas the pheomelanin is only absorbing... Reds and yellows. Or it's reflecting reds and yellows. Reflecting reds and yellows. Re- reflecting reds and yellows, right. So eumelanin doesn't really reflect much of anything, but the pheomelanin does reflect reds and yellows in the visible spectrum. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So are we ready to talk about how this kind of varies across the face of the planet and how that might've come about? Yeah. Maybe Shana says no, but I, I say, I say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm ready to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. how does this vary across the face of the planet? It varies strongly with UV strength in an area. So in areas where you see higher UV radiation, like near the equator or at high altitudes, we see individuals with darker skin. So they have more eumelanin. And then as you move toward the poles where there's less UV, we see individuals with lighter skin. They typically have a mix of eumelanin and pheomelanin. Some people make more pheomelanin than others. So that makes sense that at the equator, you're getting more direct sunlight. And when the sun is beating straight down on you, it it's going through a lot less of the atmosphere. And so then that also makes sense with if you're at a higher elevation, Mm -hmm. that there's just a lot less atmosphere to absorb the ultraviolet light. So you could be far from the equator, but really high elevation and you'd have more eumelanin inside of your cells. Okay, that's cool. Exactly. And what people have done is they've overlaid a map of UV intensity on the earth with a map of skin color. And the way that we can kind of quantify skin color is we can use a reflectometer It's a device that sends out light and we can shine that on someone's inner arm and see how much light is reflected back. And there's an index of skin color that's been developed based on that method. Hmm. And what anthropologists have done is they've used that reflectometer to measure skin color in indigenous people. So people that have been in the region that they live in for much longer than other folks who have migrated all over the earth. And they've seen this strong correlation with darker skin near the equator at the high altitudes and then lighter skin toward the poles. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you would want to obviously do this on indigenous people who've been there for perhaps thousands and thousands of years so that that would have allowed time to adapt to that particular location as opposed to recent migrants into an area. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about what is the melanin really protecting us from when it protects us from the UV, right? What are the negative consequences of UV? And I think the first thing people always think of 
is skin cancer. And that's what I work on. So I think about that a lot. But if you think about it, skin cancer doesn't usually develop before peak reproductive age. So it shouldn't affect your ability to pass your genes on to the next generation. So we don't think it's actually prevention of skin cancer that is why high levels of eumelanin have evolved in places with high UV. Hmm. Oh, so you're saying that if it affected you when you're a teenager, you know, I mean, sure, you can get a sunburn when you're a teenager and then 40 years down the road, you can get skin cancer at that location. But you're saying that's well past when you would most likely have kids. And so that's not affecting whether you can have kids or not. So normally we'd be looking for some mechanism of that, right? To say, okay, well, then this is a preferential trait that would be passed on. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be affecting their reproductive output. Yeah, so instead, what we think is that we know that UV also breaks down a B vitamin folate. Mm. And that's very important for embryonic development. And it can be broken down by UV when it circulates through the blood in the skin. And birth defects are much more common in women who have had some kind of folate deficiency. And so it's thought that maybe melanin protected skin folate from UV induced breakdown. And that would be more of a direct link to reproductive advantages or being able to pass on your genes. So with more intense UV exposure, that results in less available folate. And so a way to avoid that is by some mechanism that guards you against that additional UV. So that, right. that and, seems... And a lot of pregnant women will take like folic acid or something to exactly. help ensure that they have enough. But before we had that, then yeah, you would want as much as possible. Okay. Yeah. So that, that seems like it would be a pretty good candidate for some sort of selective agent because it could affect actual reproductive output. So is there some cost associated with producing melanin? Like wh- why wouldn't we all have dark skin if it's beneficial in this way. So for that, we have to think about how people started to move around the globe. So when we're thinking about when eumelanin first evolved, this was a very long time ago. And some of the genes that correlate strongly with eumelanin production were probably fixed in African populations about a million years ago before people started moving out of Africa in larger numbers. By fixed, what you mean is that that's the gene that everybody has. There's no variation, no other exactly. versions of the gene. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So as people started to migrate out of Africa, they encountered environments with lower UV, uh-huh. right? And sort of the flip side to what we just talked about, the protective effect of melanin is great, but UV is also needed for vitamin D synthesis. And remind us what vitamin D does for us. Yeah. So vitamin D is very important for bone development, for example. So if you have a vitamin D deficiency, you're likely to get diseases like rickets and that causes weak or soft bones in children, for example. So it can cause a lot of negative effects in young people, vitamin D deficiencies. So if you have a lot of eumelanin and you suddenly move to an area where the UV exposure is very low, it's thought that maybe the eumelanin prevented them from making enough vitamin D when there wasn't enough UV around or less UV than their past environment. And so as they were migrating into these lower and lower UV environments, the individuals with fairer and fairer skin might have been having slightly better reproductive success because they were able to make more vitamin D. Yep. Okay, that's interesting. And that would not have been a challenge in a high UV environment like an equatorial region. Right. And another interesting thing that I learned recently is that if you look at indigenous people near the poles who have dark skin, they historically have uh, diets that are very high in vitamin D. So maybe they eat a lot of fish, for example. Uh, I've wondered about that many times. I wondered if it might've also been some sort of like small founding population sort of thing. 
if there weren't some sort of biological mechanism that could explain it like this vitamin D hypothesis, I wondered if it was like, well, maybe the initial populations were really, really small and just happened to be comprised of slightly fairer skinned individuals that migrated out thing. But that that doesn't necessarily take into consideration the actual functional significance of vitamin D synthesis. Yeah, that's exactly what I used to think too. And that may be the case in some areas across the globe. So it seems that light skin has emerged independently in multiple regions. To that point, something I'm still kind of curious about or not sure about is I wonder too if production of pheomelanin is important for something and we just don't know what that is yet. Mm. Equatorial places, do they make pheomelanin as well? Most of them make some. They make a little bit of both pigments, but would make predominantly eumelanin. So is this like an either or kind of thing? Or so is a precursor molecule either put on a path towards being pheomelanin or eumelanin, and there's like a switch back and forth between those two. So we can back up a little bit and talk about the hormone that's involved here. So I mentioned the melanocyte stimulating hormone that's released in response to UV and that increases eumelanin production. So what happens is that hormone activates a receptor and the gene that encodes that receptor is one of the genes that causes most of the pigment variation that we see in Europeans. But what it does is it activates signaling pathways in the cell that increase expression of genes that are needed to make eumelanin. So what happens is in people that make more pheomelanin and less eumelanin, they likely have some mutation in the melanocortin-1 receptor that makes it less functional. So it signals less and it can activate less gene expression and then less pheomelanin is made as a result. Hmm. But the other thing that affects whether or not pheomelanin is made is the availability of the, the amino acid cysteine. Okay. So it's, it's a combination, I think, of those two factors. So the way I kind of think of it is if the hormone activates the receptor and the receptor signals a lot, you get a lot of eumelanin. If the receptor signals a lot less, you're going to get pheomelanin. So a lot of people think of pheomelanin as kind of the default melanin synthesis pathway and that you only get eumelanin if you activate the melanocortin signaling pathway. And so does that make sense in sort of an evolutionary story as well, suggesting that if you go back far enough, we probably started out with more fair skin and dark hair covering that fair skin. And then as we became increasingly hairless, our skin kind of darkened up a little bit. Exactly. And that darkening is probably due in part, a large part to variants in the melanocortin-1 receptor that are very common and fixed in Africa. So most people have a variant of MC1R in Africa that correlates strongly with dark skin. So what would be the advantage of, so I've got some Irish blood in me. You can't tell with my dark hair, but why would we have very pale skin and red hair? So it seems to me that it comes from variants of MC1R that that make less eumelanin. So those folks by default make a lot more pheomelanin. And like I said, I'm not aware of any selective advantage of pheomelanin. So I think it's it's simply made by default when you make less eumelanin, when that hormone receptor is less active. Oh, so right. everybody makes some form of melanin. Mm-hmm. It's just the balance between the eumelanin and the pheomelanin. Exactly, exactly. So if you have an equal amount of eumelanin and pheomelanin, you probably have some kind of brown hair color, maybe a a light to medium skin tone. If you make predominantly eumelanin, you'll likely have black hair, dark skin. And if you make mostly pheomelanin, you will have red hair, fair skin, and oftentimes freckles as well. So the melanin must be doing something more than just 
what what is the actual role of all this melanin then? I mean, so it's got this nice side effect that it's protecting us from UV or whatever. But I don't know. Is that a is that a side effect though? Or or is that the main thing? I I think of it as the main thing. Well, then why why would we have the pheomelanin if it's not doing any of that? That is, I have the exact same question as you. So one thing I can speculate about is that melanocortin signaling is also important for how the immune system functions in the skin. And so I, I wonder sometimes if there's something about that that we don't know enough about yet that has made the pheomelanin phenotypes common because they associate with some kind of melanocortin signaling that's important for the immune system. Hmm. But that's very speculative. So this kind of leads us into talking about genetic variants for it, perhaps. And then also, I know that you also study some adverse health consequences of different mutants for these genes. So maybe we can kind of get into those parts now. Yeah. So let's talk about the melanocortin 1 receptor first, because we've already discussed it a bit. So like I said, there are versions of that gene that are almost fixed in the African population that cause dark skin, mostly eumelanin production. And then if we look in European and Asian populations, there are many variants of the melanocortin 1 receptor that cause different types of skin hair. So I think now there are over 200 variants of MC1R that cause some kind of different skin and hair color phenotype across the globe. And there are nine that are very, very common. And some of those are the ones, Mike, that cause red hair color that you asked about. And I study a couple of these in the lab. So what most of them do is they decrease the ability of the melanocortin 1 receptor to respond to its hormone. And that prevents eumelanin production. So people with these variants often have red hair color, freckles. And in addition to that, they also have decreased DNA repair responses. So melanocortin signaling increases DNA repair in response to UV, as well as eumelanin synthesis. If you think about it, if your DNA gets damaged by UV, which happens sometimes, for example, if you have a sunburn, you might have some UV damage in your DNA. Your body has ways to prepare some of that damage. And if you have some of the red hair color variants of the melanocortin 1 receptor, your DNA repair capacity is lower. Mm. So that combined with the lower protection from UV in those individuals because they lack eumelanin makes them overall more likely to get certain types of skin cancer, especially melanomas. Yeah, so if you are fair skin, redhead, you don't want to get sunburn, not just because you're more prone to getting sunburn, but you're also perhaps less able to deal with the DNA damage. Exactly, exactly. And what's really interesting about that to me is that in some of these individuals with these red hair color variants of MC1R, they are more likely to get melanomas independent of how much sun exposure they've had. And I think that is probably related to the DNA repair capacity that's reduced in their melanocytes, for example, since Melanoma is specifically a cancer of the melanocyte cell. Any other kinds of interesting health-related or disease-related things to some of these genes that you want to talk about? Actually, Uh maybe a couple of other interesting things. In addition to the, the red hair color mutants that also correlate strongly with skin cancer risk, there's some interesting new stuff that has come out. So the melanocortin 1 receptor is also expressed in the brain. And there's some evidence that people with red hair and fair skin have maybe a lower tolerance to pain, but a higher tolerance to some anesthetics and opiates, which is very interesting. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. There isn't a lot of data on it yet. Mostly association studies that have been, been done by dentists and MDs looking at their patients. Huh. 
Do you know where in the brain it's expressed? Yeah, so it's expressed in the periaqueductal gray, and that's a region that's important for controlling pain sensation information that comes from the spinal cord, that comes from the peripheral nervous system. And it also controls release of endogenous opiates. And so I think that's very interesting. I used to work on opiates in grad school. So I think it would be really interesting to see how the MC1R signaling pathway might control release of opiates differently, depending on which variant of that receptor you have. You should explain to Mike what you mean by endogenous opiates. Ah, endogenous opiates are opiates that your body makes. So endorphins and keflins would be examples of those. So if you've heard of runner's high, right? Heard of it. I've never experienced that myself. But But yeah, whenever you exercise vigorously, you tend to release a lot of endorphins and enkephalins. And the endorphins can give you kind of a good mood feeling and the enkephalins can naturally reduce pain in the body. Yeah. So this is all kind of correlated to... I mean, it's medically relevant in that how you would manage somebody's pain, both like say during a procedure or post-op might kind of differ depending on these things that also happen to be correlated to some of these apparent features like skin and hair color. Yeah. And one thing that I should mention is there have been a lot of recent studies. So we've talked about some genes that control normal physiological variation across populations, Mm -hmm. right? And most of what we know from the past has come from studies in only European populations. And I just want to point out that that's the least diverse population, especially with regard to pigmentation. Mm. So in the past few years, what people have started to do is they've started to do these genome-wide association studies in Africa, Asia, and Latin America to find genes that correlate with different types of pigmentation in those populations too. And there's a lot more variation in the African population, for example. So it it actually makes it a little bit easier to find genes that correlate with pigment that have a functional effect when you study a more diverse population. Mm. And so a lot of new pigment genes have been found in the past few years. And the point I want to make based on what you just said was that in addition to pigmentation, there are other things likely that vary in these populations that would be helpful for medical professionals to know, like you just pointed out, right? You might want to treat someone differently when you're giving them opiates or when you're performing a surgery and using an anesthetic based on how they might respond. And so if we only have traditional studies for these drugs and pathways in one population, mostly the European population, that sort of puts the rest of the world at a disadvantage because of the genetic differences that we might see across populations. So there is kind of a push, I think, to understand these variations in genes across global populations and how they might influence health, response to certain medications, for example, sort of a personalized medicine approach. Right. In what way does skin color or pigmentation relate to the concept of race? Yeah, so it's almost entirely been used to socially construct categories among people. So if we actually look at the genetics of skin pigmentation, you can't find very strong differences across those racial categories that people have made. Really? Okay. Yeah, so you actually find more variation within one local population that you might consider to be one race based on societal groupings than you would find between two different races. So I guess what I'm thinking about is if we were looking at the genetic diversity of a population that if they were ticking a box on a survey under the category of race might tick the white box Mm -hmm. compared to another population who if they were ticking a box on a survey would tick in the race box black or African descent or African American or something depending on where the survey is being given within those groups 
there is more genetic diversity than if you compared between those two groups. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's oftentimes the case, especially if you look at skin color genes. So if we look at the African continent as one example, most of the pigment variation we see on earth is actually on that continent. So there's, there's much more variation among Africans as far as skin pigmentation than people even realize. Hmm. And that comes from genetic variants in skin pigment genes across the African continent. So we see more genetic variants that align well with geography than we do with societally constructed racial groups based solely on skin color. So if you look at Africans who live close to the equator, mm-hmm. they will have some different frequencies of genetic variants for certain skin pigment genes than Africans who live in Southern parts of the continent who might have lighter skin. Hmm. And so some of the variants that we talked about that cause light skin color in Europeans mm-hmm. are the same genetic variants that you might find in Southern Africans who have lighter skin color than Africans who live near the equator. Uh. And If we look at certain other things that may have other traits that may have arisen in response to different environments, Mm -hmm. there are some interesting examples. So if we think about sickle cell disease, Uh that has thought to have been selected for in certain places where malaria is very common. Africa is one of those places. And so among African-Americans, sickle cell is is most common in that group than any other Americans. Mm -hmm. But it's often misdiagnosed in people who are not of African descent because it's become to be thought of as just an African disease by the medical community. But that's in fact not true. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So malaria is common in other parts of the globe, certain parts of India, for example. Uh And you can find sickle cell disease in those populations as well. Okay. Another example kind of like that, cystic fibrosis is most common in people of European descent. So it's sort of thought Uh of as a quote unquote white disease. So it's often misdiagnosed in people who have darker skin, Okay. especially in Africa. So there are many examples where relying on those socially constructed groups of race have caused us to misdiagnose certain diseases just because we assume they're more or less common in a certain group. So the title of the episode or the the lead in was something pithy about skin deep. And so what did you mean by that? Yeah. So I always like to point out to people that skin color itself has no influence on any type of human behavior or really any other function in the body. Right. So it's Uh what we see across the globe is really just what we talked about today. It's just how much you melanin or pheomelanin you have, the type and quantity of, of melanin in your skin. That's really all it is. We did touch on some of these other things that melanocortin signaling can affect in the brain, but that's an entirely different system. Mm -hmm. It's very separate from skin color. They're not regulated together. So I always like to tell folks that when we see skin color, it's just one trait. It just comes from how much melanin is made. doesn't affect anything else. So I feel like I know a lot more about how melanins are made, where they're made, the evolutionary history of it, and also kind of what some of the things that we don't really know yet about the system are. And that's always exciting when there's still a lot more to know. Exactly, exactly. And I think now, like I said, we're learning a lot from these new genome-wide association studies in more global populations, the studies that have come out of Africa, Latin America, and Asia and then now with all of this data <clears throat> in the 23andMe database and things like that, we're getting more and more information. And some of the new genes that have been found to be involved in pigment seem to be things that might be able to modulate how much melanin is made, right? Things that sort of cause you to make a little bit more or a little bit less. And what I think is really cool about that is those might be good targets for pigmentation diseases to make therapeutics, to treat things like albinism or hyperpigmentation diseases. 
So thank you, Shana. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you will download it as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have an idea for a future episode, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Even though I've recently been told that the case doesn't actually matter when you use Gmail. Still, all one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening.